You are listening to The Curator Podcast, Season 2, Episode 11. An interview with Ray Harkins from the 100 Words or Less podcast. Is it Ray or Raymond? Let's start off with that. You you can call me Ray. Most people most people call me Ray. I was Raymond up until like, I don't know, first or second grade, and then most people started to just call me Ray and it works like that. So Ray, how are you, how are you doing today? How is your Thursday going? It's going uh it's going well. It's busy. I have a five year old kid, so you know, taking him to school and uh, doing all that stuff. But uh yeah, it's good otherwise. So yeah, what's it, what's it like being in a band and having a podcast and having a child at the same time? It's uh, I mean, it's a lot. I've never been one to like do one, uh, the type of person to do one thing. Uh, I don't typically enjoy just kind of being like that sort of, you know, oh, I'm only this person or whatever. So it's fun because like, you know, certain people know me from the podcast and certain people know me from the band I sing in and certain people, you know, obviously just know me as like a dad or whatever, you know, so it's fun to have those different uh, identities, but ultimately that all kind of add up to, you know, you being, you know, hopefully a interesting person with an interesting story. So let's, let's speak about your story. Let's, I guess there's, there's so many ways that I can approach this, um, I was listening to Taken earlier on today, and it was, I really, like, I really like your band. They're fucking sweet, man. Thank you. I mean, I only got to know you through the podcast initially. Um, I just found out the band recently, uh, but like, yeah, it's, it's so cool. I think um, when you're talking about like having people that kind of don't just do one thing, I think that's totally true for people that kind of do anything really creative. They kind of have more than one outlet. Would, would what would you say to that? Oh, I totally agree. I mean, I think that uh, people that are creative in whatever field or, you know, even if it's not professionally, whatever it is that they're doing, they find themselves experimenting a lot. You know, I, I, I don't think it's obviously for everybody. Like I look at uh, my wife as an example. It's like she's the sort of person where she's kind of the exact opposite of me and therefore we're able to, you know, balance each other out. But she looks at me and is like, you say yes to everything. You do so much in regards to, you know, the different things that you've participated in. But she's like, I, I would never do that. You know, if someone asked me to do this thing, I'm not interested in it. Um, and partially just because I think there's obviously always a fear of failure. Um, and I think that people that are creative tend to not care about that. <laughs> they just kind of dive in and are like, whatever, I'll figure this out as I go along. Um, and then usually they hopefully arrive to a place where they're like, oh, I feel semi-competent at this, whatever it may be. But uh, yeah, I agree. People don't, people that are creative technically don't stick to one discipline. They might have one or two things that they feel they do well, but then in that they end up experimenting so many, so many times during that, that whatever that time period may be. It's like, I think we're sort of all kind of restless souls in some way. We just need to have something to do. You know, to keep to keep us from going mad most of the time. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. No, I definitely think that there's a lot of the uh, the I always use the phrase, you know, jack of all trades, master of none sort of thing where you feel like 
you're constantly pulling the wool over people's eyes. Like, it, you know, even if it's like getting some level of quote unquote success, you know, I mean, I define the fact that, you know, you and I are speaking across each other, you know, across the the ocean. The fact that the only reason that we met each other is because you randomly listen to my podcast, you know? So it's like, that's successful in and of itself. So I think that the, uh, the level of which that you end up becoming successful um, is really uh, interesting in regards to the fact that you don't, um, you, you, no one views themselves as a professional person, you know, you're just kind of like, oh, I'm figuring this out as I go along. But then the moment someone kind of shines a light back at you and be like, hey, that's kind of a cool thing you're doing. You're like, oh, oh, yeah, I guess I guess it is a cool thing I'm doing. I'm just I'm just working, you know, I'm just having fun. I think it's a lot of people who kind of do, I guess, the things that we do. They also have got a tendency to remain quite humble. Uh, like you've exactly, you've just demonstrated that right, right, right there. <laughs> um, I mean, I think that humbleness is something, I mean, it just comes kind of naturally, you know? Oh yeah, I agree wholeheartedly. I think that I always find it's like, I tell people the moment that a person from whatever discipline that they're involved in, the moment they think they're like cool or good at something, Obviously, that's when the ego comes into play. And, you know, I'm not going to pretend that, you know, uh, people that are in our, you know, line of work, whether it's, uh, you know, playing in a band or whatever, there's obviously ego involved no matter what. But you have to be able to strip it away to be able to understand that it's like, dude, you're not cool. Like you're the moment that you think you're cool, that's when you become the sort of, you know, stereotypical archetype of a jock where it's like, oh, yeah, I'm the coolest guy in high school and I get all the girls and throw all the touchdowns or whatever. That's when that person starts to suck. You're just like, oh, yeah, they're miserable to be around because, like you said, they've, you know, they just they, they think they're cool. Um, and, yeah, I think that degree of humbleness is just kind of uh, part and parcel of making sure that at the end of the day, like, you just you're just not cool. Like <laughs> you, you could be doing cool stuff, but as long as you don't buy into that ego, then you you should be fine. Yeah, I think I don't know if I've ever felt cool, but I do always feel like I think you kind of touched upon it like just a little while ago as well. But I kind of feel as though I'm kidding on, like like someone's going to come come round and go, "You're doing that wrong, and you've been doing that wrong for fucking years. Why are you still doing that?" Like I keep waiting for someone to do that right. to me. <laughs> no, it's it, yeah, it's definitely. Um, but you know, it, it's funny. Like obviously, as you grow older and you work in different professional environments, you realize that like almost everything that is out there in the world um, that maybe has an artifice of being like, oh my gosh, like they have their stuff together. You know, the the business seems like really profitable and good or whatever. You know, you look under the hood and then you realize it's just a bunch of human beings running around kind of figuring it out as they go along. You know, there's no um, really disciplined strategy, uh, you know, everywhere. I mean, of course there is obviously because there needs to be, you know, growth and all these other things that, you know, a normal person defines as, uh, you know, successful. But at the end of the day, we're all just running around kind of taking stabs in the dark being like, oh, well, all right, let's see. Let's see how this works, you know? And I think that, yeah, there always is that feeling of like, someone's going to tap me in the shoulder and be like, all right, it's, it's about time. You should hang that up. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you've mentioned success a couple of times now. And one of the things I wanted to ask you was, was about specifically about success, because a lot of people, I don't know if you've noticed it by being a podcaster, but there's many people out there who are always trying to sell this idea of like, do that, you can do this for a living and you can be a success doing it. And I think that people kind of define, a lot of people will quick, are quick to define success as being this thing where um, 
you've got to reach like X, like huge milestone before you kind of feel as though you've you've achieved something. Um, do you th- would you say that the podcast and your creative life so far has been successful in your head? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, just because all <clears throat> everything that I've done creatively has been born from the idea of like this would be fun, you know. Um, there's never been the sort of idea of you know business plan professional life first um it's always been like okay like the whatever job i have you know i I, there has to be something i'm passionate about at the center of it and something that i define as fun you know and everything else i do kind of in orbit of that is all either hopefully remotely connected so the strengths of you know my professional life will bleed over to all the other projects i do um and vice versa it's like you know I, i look at what i'm doing now from a professional perspective my job you know, on a day-to-day basis, I sell advertising for podcasts. Like, and I do a podcast, like there's nothing that's more a a direct line that you can draw between two things and realize that like, okay, yes, like one bleeds into the other and vice versa. So, you know, the idea of, of success from that standpoint, I've always measured it by like, am I doing what I enjoy? Like, you know, do I wake up and hate my job and hate my life? And it's like all these things, I just, I'm, I answer a resounding, like, no, like I, I love my job. I love what I'm involved in. So, and on top of all that, the fact that I have uh, freedom from a perspective of, I don't feel like my time is so lacking in regards to being present in whatever, you know, my kid's life or being present for my family and being present for my friends. Like all of those are, are earmarkers to success as opposed to, um, I think it was, it was early last year I was faced with a really difficult decision of like working um at a very large management company in regards to music management and i'd be working with a you know a very prominent manager whose work i respect and i think he's an incredible human being um but it was ultimately i would i live in orange county which is about i don't know an hour and a half south of los angeles and so my my drive and commute would be pretty terrible and they wanted me in the office every day and you know i would get paid handsomely to do this job but ultimately, I was like, dude, this is even though it's still doing something that I would define as fun, all these other things would eliminate a lot of the other uh, positives in my life from like freedom of schedule. And like I said, being present for people. So it was like this total fork in the road moment where I felt like I had to make the decision like, nah, man, like I'm really happy with what I'm doing right now. I can't uproot everything in the idea of like, oh, I can get paid more money for this thing, even though that wasn't the ultimate decision. It was just like it was too much sacrifice. So. Anyways, long-winded way of me saying, like, yes, I've defined all that I've done successful, whether or not it's made any money or whether it's, like, brought any adulation to me. Um, that doesn't matter. It's just the putting it out there and being like, hey, I did that. That was cool. That was fun. Can I just ask about, um, about you know, that potential job that you could have had? Was there ever, was it, did it ever come into your head at any point that you'd also be working in the music industry and that it might in some way kind of dull like your enjoyment of music because you'd be working within it? it? No, it's a very, very important question. And something that actually, when I first started working at a record label, I was, you know, I was like 20, 20 or 21 years old. And so that was one of the first pieces of advice. Well, two things that people told me where it's like, one, Ray, you're far too nice to be working in the music industry. Like people, <laughs> people are going to take advantage of you or whatever. And then the second thing was like, be careful because you're working so closely with something that you're passionate about that this could just in turn, you know, feel like a job, which is obviously, you know, the 
the antithesis of what most people that are attracted to working in entertainment um, are. They don't ever want to feel like they're working a job. But, you know, there were there were times where it, you know, my closeness to certain either bands or projects, you know, might have uh, not clouded my vision, but uh, didn't. I didn't enjoy it as much like now, you know, like if I listened to a band's record from that time that I was working it, I might not, I might not just be like, Oh, I don't really like it. Whereas other people would be like, Oh my God, that like record is so important to me. Um, but I, it, it fortunately didn't diminish my enjoyment for like music in general, just because, uh, you know, there were, even though I was working for a record label, like we were very specific to, you know, like metal and aggressive music. So it wasn't like I, only listen to that stuff it just basically was able to broaden my palette of like okay i can't listen to you know arch enemy for this 15th time this week like i need <laughs> to branch myself out which you know fortunately i already kind of had that going on in my life prior to working at a record label but um that is something that people need to monitor as they're working with something they're passionate about because you could end up burning yourself out pretty quickly on that thing that you care so much about um it's, i think it's really interesting you mention that because um, my my job is actually as a podcaster and I work for a charity in Scotland I am and uh, I'm not going to name the charity obviously but it's I was employed to, to create a podcast network as it were for them and the reason this podcast started is because I got this job I was one of only two people that applied for it I got the job and I was like holy shit I've never actually done this before so I should probably do it so I started doing this podcast and I had a lot of fun doing it and then I was actually struggling with, I know you've done, you've been doing it for, it must be like three years, three and a half years, something like that now, you've been doing it for? Yeah, it's been, actually, I want to say, it's been over four years now, yeah, I think this coming May will be five years, so yeah. You've been doing it weekly, for pretty much that whole time, um, I was struggling with that, and I had to take a step back, I had to kind of go, I need to, I need to change the way I'm doing this, because I can't keep creating content, particularly because I was, at the start, I was very adamant. I was going to be speaking to bands in person and sometimes some months bands no bands that you like are going to come through so you're kind of like well then then what do I do so I kind of did get burnt out because I was doing it as a job and I was doing it as a hobby as well and I was like oh man I really can't I can't keep doing this but then it was through listening to podcasts like yours and like mostly harmless and all that and people kept asking me like when's it coming back when's it coming back that I had to go you know what I actually do like doing that, so I'm going to fucking keep doing that. And this is how we're talking, because this is why it took me so long to actually arrange this interview as well, because I was like, oh, I kind of don't want to do it because I don't know if I'm going to keep doing the podcast, but now I kind of do want to do it. So yeah, that's a, a good thing, a good word of warning to anybody, I think, is like, be careful if you're working with something you love, like you just said, if you're if you're working with that and it's your hobby as well, then, you know, that's... That's that can have some problems later down the line at some point. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I think it's, but I mean, you did the right thing where it's like you had to check yourself and realize, like, okay, is this something that I ultimately still want to do? Because, like, I, I mean, especially from a, such a insular uh, medium as podcasting, where it's like, you know, obviously there is the idea of you know connecting with people and obviously providing a valuable resource for, for people to, you know, find out about music, new bands, whatever. But, you know, it's essentially just us in a room talking to ourselves, maybe one other person, obviously. Um, so the idea of like, you know, setting yourself up for failure is people like being like, Oh, I'll just try this out for a month or whatever. And then like figure it out. And it's like, you, you really have to 
set some goals for yourself because if you don't do that, you're just going to, you know, you're going to do it for a month and then you're not going to care about it. And then it's just going to waste away. And, um, you know, while that may be a valuable lesson, but to, for you to learn, you do need to, um, you know, follow through and obviously be able to give yourself enough time to have people ultimately give a shit about what you're doing, you know? Um, Cause that was my goal initially where I was just like, all right, for one year, I'm going to do this and I'm going to see how it feels. And if it ever feels like work or something I don't enjoy, then I'm going to pull the plug. Um, it be, and no one's going to care. It'll be fine. And you know, here I am, whatever, four and a half years later. And it's like, people still care the show. I mean, the show isn't growing anymore. I don't find, I get these huge bursts of popularity. I mean, yes, yeah, some shows are more popular than others, but it's not like I'm getting that sort of dopamine rush of like, oh my God, dude, huge downloads, crazy. But it's just like, hey, these people, you know, download this on a weekly basis and it's a comfortable level where I'm not able to like, it, it doesn't consume me where I'm just like, oh my gosh, I'm just worried about all these shows and I have to record and blah, blah, blah. It's like, okay, it's manageable. And as long as it doesn't spiral out of control, then I'm fine. But yeah, you got to set those goals for yourself initially. And then if you do achieve those goals and you ultimately arrive at the end, you know, then then you do have to check yourself whether or not it's something you want to keep on going. And I mean, it's a good thing you did that because otherwise, you know, you would just be kind of marching forward half heartedly and no one wants to hear anything like that. I think part of my problem as well is like I only started this particular podcast because I had to learn really quickly on how to do it properly. And I didn't actually set any goals. And then it was kind of good in a way because when I started to hit like a certain amount of downloads per month, I was like, holy shit, I never thought that would ever happen. I never thought I would ever see that number of people who actually listen to what I'm doing. So that was really, really good. But kind of like yourself, maybe because I wasn't goal focused on it, I wasn't, it wasn't really growing at the time. And that didn't bother me because it was like, well, there's enough people there that like it, so I'm going to keep doing it. But I think you do need to have something to drive towards. And I think that's kind of what I'm going to do now for this next season is to do something different and to kind of drive towards an end goal, I think, of some kind. What, what, what goals do you have now? It's been four and a half years. You've, you've interviewed a lot of amazing people. I mean, what's, what's the next hundred words or less, like, podcasting goal in your head yeah I, to be to be honest at this point i don't really have any goals anymore um just because they've all uh whatever i've set up for myself i've achieved you know from the fact that it's like i i make money off a podcast and that doesn't and, and it's not like oh i make like a hundred bucks it's like you know i'm making thousands of dollars and like that doesn't make like that's never ever something that i intended to happen and now it's happening and so you know i have the commitment that I have put out there in regards to, you know, advertisers and people that feel like they want to invest in this show, I have that commitment. So it's like at this point, even though it doesn't feel like a job, it's a job. I have a commitment to, um, you know, myself and kind of just basically keeping this thing rolling as long as as humanly possible, because um, at the end of the day, I still really just enjoy it. So I, I really don't have any sort of like metrics based goals in regards to uh, the podcast anymore. It's just like, oh, wow, like I didn't think about interviewing that person and, you know, a publicist hit me up to have this person on the show. So yeah, that actually, that makes sense. Um, because, you know, now at this point, um, I've had, you know, whatever, 200 some odd people on the show. And I try not to, to really repeat any of my guests uh, besides like my super, super, super close friends. Um, and so now I'm at the point where um, a lot of people are just kind of bringing me guests of people that I'm like, oh, I've never met them before, but that would be interesting. So um, exploring that and then also just kind of, you know, setting my sights on I, my favorite guests that I have, um, not disparaging the people that are in bands or anything like that, but 
is the people what I like to call secret punks. So it's like everybody, you know, that has been profoundly influenced by like, you know, DIY, independent, you know, punk, hardcore, whatever you'd like to call it, that came up in the early to mid 90s and have seen that scene flourish are now doing really creative things that maybe not even connected to music at all. Um, I'll use an example where it's like Roman Mars. He does an amazing podcast called 99% Invisible. And he also... Yeah, it's awesome. Yeah, it's incredible. And then he does Radiotopia, which is basically his podcast collective. Anyways, he... I heard him over the course of many of his episodes kind of sprinkle in, you know, little nods to punk or hardcore. And I'm like, okay, this guy seems like he knows, like, what's up. Like, no one just... You know, of course, everyone knows who Black Flag is, but like, you know, he said something about Ted Kennedy's once. And I was just like, OK, I think this guy has a, a backbone from where we came from. And then I hit him up and he was like, he was so excited to do the interview because he's like, you know, no one talks to me about music. Everyone talks to me about like how to do a successful Kickstarter. Um, and it was such a great conversation because it was like in the middle of it, it's just like, oh, yeah, like, I guess I'm I guess I'm straight edge. And It's like it was one of those things where it's like. <laughs> You know, he would never have uttered those words to anybody else because they would all be asking him questions from this very specific point of view. So anyways, I use that as an anecdotal example because those are my favorite types of people who have been profoundly influenced by independent culture and are creating it on their own now in very unique and differing ways that, um, you know, we could have never considered even a possibility some, you know, 20 years ago. It's like, it's just, it's, it's so wild where it's like, yeah, you have a person like that. And then you have a person like, um, you know, CM Punk, who's like, you know, a, a wrestler and straight edge and profoundly influenced by punk and hardcore. And like, now he's a UFC fighter. And it's just like all these people doing a wide variety of things that have all kind of come from the same scene. And those are the people I like to have on that are just people are like, wait, what? What the, who, who's this public radio person? Like, what does that have anything to do with anything? And it's like, well, how about this? And they're like, oh, so that's why. <laughs> I remember I, I stopped watching. It's interesting you brought up CM Punk because I stopped watching wrestling for, for a long, long time. And then I think I came back to um, it. It must have been 2009 or something, 2010. And I seen this guy and I was like, holy shit, like he's got... He's got some interesting tattoos. I need to know more about this guy. And then it was like, holy shit, he's really into like H2O and stuff like that. And I was like, this guy's a fucking wrestler. What's going on? Like, yeah. I don't understand. Because well, I, I think to me, like I said, it's just one of those things where everybody between the ages of like, you know, 30 and 45 are now of an age in which obviously they need to be part of the working world and they need to be doing something creative. And it, that manifests itself in so many different ways. Um, and that's, you know, that's the power of being influenced by, you know, putting on shows in your local hometown, like all of that stuff that is kind of the backbone of, of a lot of businesses and professional life is completely done when you're, you know, 15 years old. Whereas like most quote unquote normal 15 year old kids are like, you know, who do I ask to homecoming? And it's like, you're like putting on a show and worried about paying a band a hundred bucks or whatever. Um, and that's, that's like, you know, you don't even think about it as developing, you know, lessons for life. You're just like, I just want to put on a show because I want this band to play here or I want my band to open for them or whatever, you know? Um, so I just love that. And then now that you're an adult, you look back on those, those times so fondly because you're like, I learned so much because I know that to promote, you should actually like make flyers and like do these things or whatever, you know, you just learn all these lessons that you don't even know are, are applicable until you're, you know, in the middle of a working world and be like, Oh wow. I already know how to do that. And I'd never thought of that. It never came into my head before that, like, a lot of punks who were growing up become self-sufficient just through 
the nature of the discourse in that particular scene and then those skills are definitely transferable that never occurred to me before that's a really interesting insight yeah no i i mean i i honestly i'm obsessed with it just because i I find it so fun um again kind of going back to our original discussion point of identity and doing um, many different things i think that's when you trip across people that um you know, you, you just have such a, you know, you walk into either a new environment, a new workplace or whatever, you're going to gravitate towards the people who like know how to be professionals and like know how to get their stuff done. And I can't tell you how many times I've tripped across people where it's like, oh, hey, like, you know, do you go to shows? Like, do you have like, do you know what's up? And then, you know, if people start to obviously say like the correct reference points or whatever, you know, or if they refer to it as like, oh, yeah, the last concert I went to and it's like, OK, well, you know, <laughs> we're not talking about the same thing, which is fine. <laughs> but you just you just find uh, the more on top of it people are. Um, I'm not saying it's always happened like it, the cor- the correlation is like 100 percent right. But you'd be surprised at how many times that it's like, oh, there is a person that is you know at least has been influenced by that scene whether or not they listen to that sort of music at all anymore it doesn't matter it's like they've just been influenced by it you know it's like i look at i look at the amazing work that vice does and it's like dude they could not be more far removed from the original shitty punk zine that they were you know in the early 90s and it's like now they're a media empire where people are investing hundreds of millions of dollars in this thing and you can't you can't tell me that you can't draw a straight through line to the way that they're doing their news now versus what they were doing when they were just you know a crappy punk scene there's the the dna is written all over it even though it's just grown up and obviously can put on a suit occasionally it's just a beautiful thing that i just i i revel in it i just like oh this is so good i love it so much so that's probably a good segue to to kind of start talking about more about music um that was a really professional link. I've never done that before. Um, Beautiful segue, my friend. <laughs> um, when did you, when did you discover? When did you first discover? Uh, I'm not going to say music because that's, I mean, from what I've gathered doing all the interviews I've done so far, that differs from person to person. But in particular, when did you discover like the DIY thing? When did you realize that was going to be something that was very close to your heart and your personality? Uh, I would say that it started com- coming into vision. I would say junior high school. So that's like seventh or eighth grade uh and that's probably like when you're like 12 or 13 years old um i I wasn't going to shows then or anything um i mean i was going i guess technically so this was like you know 92 93 94 so it was like you know the explosion of the grunge music scene and then obviously once all of the you know your green days and rancids and offspring started to explode shortly after that um i was definitely aware of all that and i was listening to it just because southern california has an incredible radio station called k-rock that they um you know they just they play good music and they're really on top of it um and so that's when i started to like being really really focused on music and then i just uh my thirst for it just kept going and going and i wanted to keep digging deeper and look at their influences and look at like why this band was wearing a certain t-shirt when they were appeared on MTV's 120 minutes or whatever. So the amount of input that I could have couldn't satiate my desire. So it was just like everything I was consuming, like it was all good, you know, everything from, you know, Rage Against the Machine to Green Day. Like, like I said, I was, I was shoving it all in my head, um, you know, Blink 182. Well, even though at the time they were just called Blink. Um, <laughs> and then, uh, yeah, then I started <clears throat> Rage Against the Machine was the first time that I really started to uh, explore heavier music and then realize that there was also a political undercurrent in a lot of these bands where it was like, Oh, 
like the world is not all right. Like there are things that people have problems with and my white suburban upbringing just didn't afford me the luxury of knowing that there's a plight around the world that other people go through. Um, and then that's when I started to discover um, a lot of the stuff that was on the Victory Records catalog. That's when I started to discover Revelation Records um, and basically just started going down that rabbit hole there. And then it was probably when I was, I would say 15 or so, that's when I started to be able to um, like go to shows as far as like, you know, maybe having my parents drop me off at a show where I'd start to see Strife and a lot of the um, Southern California hardcore bands. Um, so yeah, but it was, it was all around that sort of 12 to 15 age range where I just was like, just consuming as much as I possibly could and realizing that, uh, I loved it all and I couldn't have enough of it. See, when, when you were that age and you were sitting in Southern California, how long did, how, at what point actually did you become aware of the fact that the whole music scene in that area is not just hugely influential to you and to those people, but like... <laughs> all over the world like did, did that ever enter your mind is that something that you'd ever thought about I mean because those are the kind of bands that I I loved listening to when I was growing up as well and you know I'm I'm literally the other side of the world from you and so far away and have you ever considered that like you've, you're in this you're in this place where so much good shit has happened probably I would say probably kind of the same as maybe London was in the 70s or England was in the, the late 70s that kind of thing had that ever entered your mind at any point like over the I guess, since then until now? Oh, absolutely. Once I started to understand the lineage of bands, like, you know, I mean, a huge band that was uh, influential to me that, you know, was essentially a local band, but obviously they had international appeal because they did tours, like a band like Ignite. So like, you know, Ignite by no stretch of the imagination is successful at all in a, a far, as far as a mainstream perspective is concerned. I, yeah. I, I apologize. I have a dog barking in the background. Don't worry about <laughs> it. Ambience, really like ambience. But so... So yeah, Ignite, there was Ignite and, you know, I was able to see them locally because they were from uh, Huntington Beach. Hold on. I'm actually going to let my dog out. Hold on. <laughs> okay. No worries. All right. Sorry about that. All right. Sorry about that. No worries. Um, so yeah, like I was saying, um, Ignite was a huge jumping off point for me because they were a local band. They were from, you know, the Southern California area. Like I even wrote a letter to the singer because like I saw there was like a P.O. box address in Huntington Beach, which was like two towns away from me. So I was like, oh, I could write him a letter and like this, you know, won't cost him much money or whatever. But <laughs> so but then I started to realize where it was like, oh, like Ignite started to tour around the country. And like this was a thing that they had done. And then I started to I, through Ignite, I started to get into bands like Uniform Choice and Chain of Strength. And like I started to trace the, the lines of the, you know, hardcore scene that was so important in the, you know, late 80s, early 90s. And then I started, I mean, I, there was no escaping Epitaph Records and Fat Records. And I started to see, obviously, a lot of the lineage that happened with those labels. And so, you know, I just felt incredibly lucky, the fact that I felt like it was like some sort of epicenter. Um, and I... I realized that at a relatively early age, just because of the sheer amount of shows that existed in my area where it was like there were bands would either always play L.A. or Orange County. And there are very few times where it's like I looked at a tour that was happening and it was like, oh, man, it's not coming west. It's like, you know, bands always want to come west. There's always places to play <laughs> out here. So I recognized it. And it was uh, I'm thankful for, you know, obviously being <laughs> 
growing up in this area and then obviously having a lot of people such as yourself who had no geographical geographical connections but then still recognize how important it was. Hi there, it's Mark. Just thought I'd jump in here to remind you that if you haven't already, it would be really appreciated if you could subscribe to the podcast. You can do that by hitting the subscribe button and whatever podcasting app you're currently Instacart shoppers know groceries. They know that you can't make guacamole with rock-hard avocados. They know how to quickly find those peanut butter pretzels you can never find. And they keep you in the know by giving you updates about your order along the way. Let Instacart shoppers help take shopping off your plate so you can get time and energy back for what really matters. Visit instacart.com or download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders. Offer valid for a limited time. Minimum order $10. Additional terms apply. Instacart. Add life to cart. Spin your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records. Let's go back to this interview with Ray. It just blows my mind that... I'm, it all came from a lot of the stuff that I loved also came from that one area and yeah like to me someone that's so remote from it it was I always kind of had this weird thing in my head where it was like people but people don't actually live there though like they kind of live like near it but they just all go to this one place to do this thing and then they go home and it's not in that area but obviously that's totally nonsense <laughs> but it was yeah it's, it's weird man like we don't really have it's hard to say that we've we had anything like that here and in, in that time um like everything's so everything in britain is so disparate particularly uh punk and hardcore music i mean there's lots of really good local diy scenes like in glasgow and dundee and and all that and bits of scotland and in london obviously as well but there's never been that i don't know we don't it doesn't i don't think the diy will diy i'll say that again the diy will I can't even say it right. <laughs> DIY culture in, in Britain is, it seems to be slightly different from the way you guys do it in America, whilst also be, say, different kind of approach, same attitudes. Does that make sense? Oh, I totally agree. I mean, I think a lot of it has to do with just the geographical areas in which people are from. Like, I'll always, I'm always obsessed with the regionality of certain sounds from certain eras of music. Like, um, you know, I look at a place like Louisville, Kentucky, and uh, a label like Initial Records. Um, I just I just get obsessed with the idea that it's like, okay, here's this label that starts in Louisville, Kentucky, that has a lot of bands that, you know, are from across the country, but then also have a lot of pride in their hometown and release a lot of cool records from bands, you know, uh, you know, wh- whatever, like Elliot and all that sort of stuff. It's it's always so meaningful to me because it was like, you know, they didn't they were in the middle of the country. They were taking influences from all these different places, but ultimately had this Midwestern mentality and vibe that, you know, just kind of bled out into everything that they did. Uh, you know, I think the same thing could be said, obviously, for, you know, uh, your country where it's just like there's I mean, I remember the flashpoint of like when, you know, Funeral for a Friend and Hundred Reasons and all that stuff started to pop off in the early, you know, early to whatever, mid 2000s. And it was so yeah. it was so interesting because it was like, here are these bands that, you know, are, you know, ostensibly just like children and like being thrust into these, you know, arenas. And it was so interesting to me to watch it all kind of transpire because it basically just mimicked a lot of what had previously happened in, you know, 
London and obviously the surrounding areas where it was like, you know, these these bands that really maybe ostensibly weren't ready for the prime time were thrown into it and everybody, the press just swirled around them. And so it, I just find it so interesting because I do agree that your scene is obviously much different than, you know, America's as a whole. Um, but then there's so many unique things that uh, you guys do that, you know, couldn't be duplicated over here, you know, like, yeah, we can we can kind of have the press sort of lift up a band and be a really important thing, but it's not as centralized as what your, your guys's music press is. So, um, you know, good or bad <laughs> is so centralized on like, you know, Hey, let's lift up this band. And then, you know, they're on the cover of Kerrang and NME and everything else. And it was just like, Oh my God, like all of a sudden you couldn't escape this band, you know? I think uh, that that's definitely true. And I think it happens even more now than it happened back then in Britain, um, for sure. But those bands like Funeral for a Friend and Hundred Reasons and stuff like that, um, I think I, I remember one of the first times, one of the first shows I was ever at was Funeral for a Friend. They played a small club in Glasgow called The Cat House and they were supporting Boy Sets Fire, who are a phenomenal band, one of my favourite bands still to this day. And that was when I first like seen them. It was our first ever UK tour. And that was in the back of their first EP. So those guys had probably just come out of the studio. And then, like, within two years, they were, like, fucking, they were huge. They were supporting Iron Maiden in, in Europe and stuff like that, you know. And it was just, yeah, and 100 Reasons too. I remember they played a really big venue in Glasgow called The Barras, The Barrowlands. And, like, they were not ready to play that stage. They were not ready to play. But it was sold out. And soon afterwards, like, the momentum just kind of slowly went away until they kind of faded away. And I think it's really sad when that happens. Like, uh, all these bands are obviously also influenced by the, that same culture that's influenced, like, you and I. But for some reason, I guess, when you see the big money, you kind of go, oh, shit, we can actually do this for a living. And then uh, it's like, have you not seen how other bands have fallen? You know, if they, if they don't make the cut. Yeah. And then, you know, and then they kind of do, and it's kind of sad to see that happen. Yeah, I mean, but I mean, I, I always... I always... I mean, obviously I'm a, well, not obviously, but I'm a very glass half full person where it's like everybody that sees someone become successful and they obviously try to replicate that. Um, they're really going to have no sort of cultural impact or, uh, resonance with people for a prolonged period of time. Yeah. They could, you know, rise like a supernova. And then, um, you know, it's like, I look at bring me the horizon. Um, and inc- like, I personally really, really like the band and obviously it's very easy to throw stones at that band and, um, you know, call them, you know, trend hoppers or whatever. Like I, I get all the criticisms behind it, but the fact that they were able to live through the sort of, um, the scene that they were thrust in and upon, um, you know, I, I admire that because it's like, they just, they were able to kind of weather the storm and still be just as popular. And, you know, same thing as architects where it's like, they had to suffer through a lot of that same stuff and uh I, I just like it when bands can live through that and then hopefully the their longevity is able to rub off on bands and realize that like yo you gotta be a band for like 10 years <laughs> before anybody starts to pay attention to, to you and um i mean bring me the rising is a l- less so of a case than obviously like architects you know they were they worked at it for years before anybody paid attention to what they were doing and uh you know now they're reaping <clears throat> the rewards of success from that perspective but yeah, I do agree. I mean, it obviously is sad when you see so many bands just start out of nowhere and you can clearly tell that they've been, you know, manufactured from a marketing perspective more than anything else. I think Bring Me Bring Me the Horizon are a really <clears throat> interesting example. And I, after you've seen that, I would just I just want to kind of ask you, like, what is your impression of, 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 of that band and how they became as big as they've become? Like, 
kid, like, it's really weird for me because I remember when they first came out, like, with their first EP and they had the big Frenchies and they were, they were seen as a joke and people in Britain did not like them at all. But they kept at it and they kept at it and they kept at it at it and the same kind of way that we look at Biffy Clyro it's like well this is a band that have been at it for a long time and they've they've paid their dues you know the fact they're huge now to me it seems it makes sense like they've they just kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger they, they weren't overnight they were kind of like once the hip at a time boys um did did you get the same impression from those guys like over over in America? I mean, it's a, I, I have a very colored perspective just because I was paid like when I was when all a lot of those bands were rising to prominence. I was working at the record label, so I was acutely paying attention to what was happening in the UK as far as like the music scene and the sort of bands that were um, you know kind of getting some sort of attention. So like I was trying to sign Bring Me the Horizon to the re- label I worked for, Century Media Records, when they were on Visible Noise. So anyways, I, I color that by saying my perspective is definitely not reflective over what most normal people experience here in America. Um, but I do, I, I think that they were kind of a, um, <sighs> Bring Me the Horizon was a very untarnished band in the sense of like, you know, people here in the States don't care about all of the UK press and publicity and all the, you know, all of the tabloidy sort of journalism that obviously exists over there. So, you know, like Bring Me the Rising came over here and they didn't have anything to prove beyond just like being really heavy and being really loud and being engaging. And obviously, um, you know, Ollie as a frontman, people paid attention to because he was, ex- he, he is still extremely energetic and uh, obviously commands a room really well. So, their rise to prominence here made total sense to me. It was just like, it was literally a matter of writing on the wall. Like I so distinctly remember before they put out, I want to say suicide season. And I remember getting the advance of that to listen to it when they were looking to, for partners here in America. And I was just like, Oh my God, like this record is so good. And I was like, you know, putting together like a profit and loss sheet where it's like, okay, if you sell X amount of records, you're going to make, you know, from a label perspective, this is how much you're going to make after marketing in advance and everything else you spend. Um, And, you know, I conservatively was like, okay, like this record in the course of a 12 to 18 month calendar cycle, they're probably going to sell, you know, 45,000 records. And even at that, I was like, dude, they're going to sell more than this. I can guarantee you. But ultimately I couldn't get that plan signed off on and I couldn't present them with the sort of deal I wanted to. And, you know, I mean, I understand that's fine. Like, but it was just one of those things where I was like, to me, the writing was on the wall. This band is going to be insanely successful. (laughs) And then, you know, lo and behold, it was like, I think they sold that many records in like four months over here. (laughs) And it was just like, (laughs) oh my gosh. But you know, it's whatever. Hindsight's always 2020 and you can look at like, oh, it's the smartest person ever. And it's like, I'm not trying to say that, but I'm just trying to say that their, uh, their success was really kind of um, going to happen no matter what you could just kind of feel that momentum so um which is cool because like i said they didn't have any baggage to bring over because people don't pay attention to a lot of that the maybe the negative stuff that was swirling around the band to me as well bring me the horizon to have a kind of american sound um i don't know if that's just my i don't know if that's just the way that i look at it um but, but one thing that makes me wonder is uh, a band like biffy Clyro. i mean how are they seen in america do you, do you even know who that is? Oh, I, I do know who that is. Yeah, I completely ignored. Um, I mean, they have their... I'll, I'll use the example, too, of there's like a band like, uh, you know, Billy Talent from Canada. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. They are... There's these weird 
lines where people just it just doesn't connect with a certain area you know a band like alexis on fire is the same thing where it's like yeah granted now they're more popular than they were here in the states because like they would tour the states and play to 200 to 300 people no one would care and when i say no one i mean like relatively speaking to like what they would play it everywhere across the world so biffy clyro billy talent same they're, they're in the same stew where it's like, yeah, they play to stadiums where they're from. And then they would yeah. they would come over here and in Los Angeles, they would play to a sold out Troubadour in. And that that's like maybe a 300 capacity venue. And, you know, that would be cool because obviously the industry is there and everyone's excited. But then if they did a full U.S. tour, they'd be playing to like 50 to 100 people a night, maybe. Like, And it's just it's it's rough. But there are just certain bands that just don't click in certain countries and really no one can draw a straight line as to why that occurs. Some of it just happens and some of it just doesn't. It's kind of a weird comparison to draw, but Oasis and and also the Manny Street Preachers are also afflicted with the same thing in America. I think these bands have got a certain kind of regionalness to them, which is maybe why they appeal so much more in, in their home country than they do, you know, across obviously your way um, but if you've got a very Scottish sound uh, and so have Twin Atlantic I don't know if you know Twin Atlantic either yeah um, totally again another band that's like they've done their due diligence over here and they've had a appropriate promotional push and like everybody's tried to you know do them well or do good by them over here and they just it just hasn't clicked not to say that it ever won't happen but I, you can just see it you know kind of time and time again and sometimes it does take I'll use Architects as another example where it's like you know, it took them forever to get any sort of foothold here in the States. And like now they obviously have the ability to do their own headlining tours over here in front of, you know, 400 to 800 people a night, which is spectacular for where they used to be, which was like they'd be lucky if they could get, you know, 50 to 100 people out. Um, and sometimes it just takes that time of being persistent and obviously opening up for the right bands and all that sort of stuff. But yeah, it's a uh, there's really no formula <laughs> anywhere. <laughs> Yeah, there totally is, and that's like I just kind of wondered what your perspective was on all that kind of thing because we only I only see it from from here, obviously, and uh, it's yeah, you're totally right about the press as well. The way that things work over here is definitely I don't think it's a good way of doing things, to be honest. Uh, I, it it doesn't even directly appeal to my DIY sensibility. There's a lot of small bands in Britain that'll happily throw money away on PR and getting publicists and stuff, and then they won't tour or anything like that and it's kind of like well why are you doing that like that's not gonna yeah you're not gonna win you're not gonna win the game by doing that you need to go, you need to actually go out and do hard work you need to play shows every night you know you need to it's i don't know do you do you see that happening in america as well or is that like a distinctly european thing well i no, i i do think it's it is distinct i mean not even europe but obviously just the uk in general where it's like that definitely is the plan of attack when it comes to uh, building certain things you know i'll use another example of a band that i'm extremely uh, my perspective is very colored just because I've, I've worked alongside the band for a long time, but like moose blood where it's like they, you know, now they're obviously at a point where they are extremely successful and they're, you know, they're currently touring the U S and playing in front of packed rooms, not doing their own headlining stuff, but you know, they're successful over here and I know successful over there as well. And it wasn't because they were um, captivating from a press perspective, you know, they're like for the most boring dudes possible like they're very much like you know jimmy world where it was like all right where's the story where's the torture and they're like we don't have one like i just i don't know i 
we're just dudes, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and so, uh, obviously a band like that, a band like Mooseblood didn't capture the press's attention. So, you know, they did it like you said, the way that, you know, many other bands have done it before them, where it's just like, all right, you know, gigging around, trying to play as many shows as possible and opening up some cool international touring acts and, you know, popping over to Europe and that sort of stuff. Um, so yeah, there's obviously there's more than one path to, you know, get people's attention. Um, but you know, when, when a band doesn't have any sort of, um, desire to be at the forefront in regards to press, like you're going to, you know, it's going to be less interesting to the general public from a a UK perspective. Um, obviously that's, you know, that's changing over time, um, because obviously there's, you know, so many more mediums in which bands could be exposed. Um, but yeah, that's, that's kind of the way that I've always, and granted, I'm viewing it from the music industry perspective. So, you know, but I, I know that it's like most of the music buying public, you know, isn't rushing out to buy, you know, enemy from their local bookstore anymore. It's like, you know, they're getting it like every other person does around the world through the Internet. So, um, yeah, it's interesting. Well, the, the enemy is actually free now. You, they, they hand it out in the street. Oh, yeah. wow. It's, yeah. Well, th- there you go. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> How things have changed. Absolutely. But being somebody that works in the, mu- the works music industry, I mean, but did you ever have some other aspirations uh, with with any of the bands you were in uh, to to kind of do that? Yeah, fr- well, okay, I'll, I'm glad you brought this up because I actually haven't really had a form in which to discuss these two uh, unique perspectives I have in regards to the the two bands that I played in. So the first band I played in was Taken, like you referenced earlier, and that I was that was around from like '97 till about 2004. Um, you know, and a lot of that was obviously during our our high school years and like some of our college years. Um, and then, you know, we broke up because basically lost a few members and, you know, we really kind of didn't want to lose any more original members. So we kind of wrapped it up. Uh, but then we did some reunion shows here and there. And technically now we're kind of a band that's back and play shows occasionally, like every other band that has ever existed. <laughs> we we <laughs> exist in that same sort of nebulous space where someone asks us to play a show and it makes sense, then we do. We're going to put out new music next year. So anyways, that band no it, to answer your, your original question we never had any any idea of like what a successful roadmap was everything that we accomplished was just by sheer happenstance uh sheer coincidence um obviously there's hard work involved but um a lot of these things were just like oh wow like we got signed to a record label from southern ontario in canada and then um just because i randomly sent them a seven inch and like who the fuck sends a seven inch out to like get signed like it's just all like every time i recount the story in my head i'm like none of this should make sense like (laughs) i wouldn't recommend it to anybody as far as like how to get to a level of you know even remote success so that band had never had any sort of strategy you know it was like oh cool like here's another opportunity let's go ahead and do this and like oh here this is like let's try to sign with this record label um, you know, in my opinion, uh, you know, we, we disbanded kind of before we felt a lot of the momentum that we were, you know, kind of getting around that time, like we were going to sign to another record label, um, and we were going to, you know, put, put another full length out and there's a lot of plans, but then, you know, obviously life gets in the way, but the second band that I formed, which was called Makoto, we were around from like 2005, 2006 till about 2009 ish or so. And that band, on the other hand, a lot, uh, these were all friends that I had known for a while through the music scene. And we went into it very calculated where it's like, okay, and when I say calculated, actually, you know what? I'll be honest. It was calculated across the board. We uh, wanted to play a certain style of music that was, you know, something that we enjoyed, but definitely something that was very of the moment. So, you know, you're, you're having 
your bands like, you know, Under Oath and Seosin, um, you know, I, I had never had the vocal capabilities of singing, but fortunately the guitarist that I played with, he had a great set of pipes on him. So it was one of those things where it was like, okay, I can scream and he can sing. And we'll kind of this weird amalgamation of like the sort of, you know, the hope conspiracy, like aggressive hardcore that we like, but then mixed with bands like Under Oath and Seosin and stuff like that. So the sound was calculated because we, that's what we wanted to do. And obviously that was what's kind of popular at the moment. Um, and then the strategy in regards to like the rollout and the way that we wanted to kind of achieve success was very calculated just because we had kind of done this before. So like I knew myself, like a lot of people at record labels and I knew how to kind of put these connections together. But, you know, I'll be completely honest in the fact that like no one gives a shit about that band now. Like no one. I mean, out of every hundred people that randomly talk to me, maybe one person mentions that. Um, and to be honest, it's because we were putting forth a product that wasn't necessarily, you know, the truest, you know, in our gut sort of expression. It was a version of it, but it wasn't the most accurate representation if we were like, all right, like, because we wanted to tour, we wanted to try to make it a thing, you know, and I never had the vision of like, this is all I want to do in my life, you know, I didn't want to be that guy in a band and that was my only identity. That's why I was always continually working at record labels and doing other things. So I never wanted to pin my hopes and dreams on being like, oh man, I'm gonna, I'm gonna make a living off of music, you know, I'll make a living off of music, <laughs> but not by playing it. But it didn't mean to, it, I, I front load that statement with the fact that, you know, I really wanted this to be successful. I wanted it to be like, okay, I'll tour, you know, seven to eight months out of the year and this will be a thing. Um, but ultimately we did a lot of cool stuff and it fortunately afforded me the opportunity to go to Japan multiple times and create a lot of relationships over there, but it just didn't, it didn't resonate with anybody, you know? And I, I do think that's directly correlative in regards to the actual art that we were creating. It was very, um, you know, uh, I don't want to use the word sterile cause like I feel bad saying it because I wasn't the one that was creating the music. I was obviously just doing the lyrics and, and uh, the vocals from that perspective. So like, I can't, I was signing off on the music cause I enjoyed it. But at the same time, it was very much like we were writing it from a very, um, a, a very myopic focus on like, okay, this is not like we were writing to be popular, but we were definitely writing uh, music that was, was geared towards the scene as opposed to like, all right, we'll see what comes out, you know? Um, even though the last thing that we did, which was just like a five song EP that we only put out in Japan was very reflective over what we kind of wanted to sound like. Um, and that we only did that just because we were kind of like, all right, well, yeah, we're not really doing this from like a full time, like let's make it successful sort of thing. So, um, sorry, that was a very long winded answer, but I just, I really think about it a lot in weighing those two approaches with uh, creating art and obviously the uh, intersection between business and that and it was just a it was a very reflective experience for me it's kind of it basically comes back to that question of authenticity doesn't it, it in, in a kind of way it, no it totally does i mean i i i don't want to like i said i don't want it to make it sound like this was like this completely contrived and inauthentic representation of ourselves but it was definitely um like I said, calculated is the best word. It was calculated and deliberate and not like in a, you know, we're evil musicians twirling our mustaches like, oh, let's take money from the kids. <laughs> but it was very much like, OK, this is what we want to sound like. And cool. That's fortunately what's happening right now in the ecosystem. So let's go ahead and lean into it. Um, and, you know, I, I think that is due also to our age. Uh, you know, we were all in our kind of 
early to mid twenties at that point. So we weren't, you know, 17 year old kids. So we, you know, we had a little bit bigger vision of the world. Um, but that didn't mean that we didn't make a lot of mistakes and didn't, uh, you know, kind of fall on our face from that sort of, uh, idea of what we wanted to accomplish. So, um, but yeah, so it, it was, it wasn't, 100% inauthentic, but it was just a version of ourselves as opposed to like the actual, you know, maybe if we didn't have any of that influencing us and we were like 17 years old again, but that's all hypothetical. I, you know, it's a, it's a pointless endeavor to try to like figure out what it was we were trying to do, but I do know what we were trying to do and, you know, we didn't accomplish it. You can, t- you can tell by the way you're talking about that it's definitely something you've wrestled with for, a, for a, a number of years I'm kind of wondering why did you decide that that was something you wanted to do at that particular point in your life I just knew that I wanted to still uh, like I guess get out there and play in a band um, just because the the way that Taken ended was very much uh, you know it felt abrupt and it felt like I, I didn't um, kind of do everything I wanted to do from that perspective so I felt like a logical extension and not even so much from an identity perspective because I know a lot of people that end one project that receive any level of prominence, you know, struggle with the idea of like, who am I now? You know, I never had that burning inside of me, but I was just like, I want to do more stuff. Like I want to tour more. I want to like make new friends. I want to have these experiences still. So that was born out of that. It was only after obviously the band, that second band Makoto started to wind down is when I could kind of have the perspective. And then especially once Taken started to play shows again, because it was like, it was this weird five years in a row where I got to go to Japan, each alternating year with a different band. So the first year I went with Makoto, second year I went with Taken, third year I went with Makoto, the next year I went with Taken, and then one more time I went with Makoto. So it was interesting to see people's reaction to the the music that we were creating and how both experiences were unbelievable because it was like, well, I'm in fucking Japan and people know the lyrics. Like, this is so bizarre. I don't understand it at all. <laughs> but then weighing the intensity of experiences that people had towards Taken um, versus what they had with Makoto, which was still visceral and important, but it just felt ultimately different. And then I was able to kind of weigh all that after, you know, I had been clear of those five years of experiences, you know, by a couple of years by realizing like, okay, like maybe I can point to the reason that Makoto wasn't quote unquote successful at our original plan um, was because maybe we weren't creating it from the most, uh, you know, um, not unique space, but the most honest space at that particular time. Does does that fire still exist? A play, to do a playing in a band? No. <laughs> um, I, <laughs> I mean, I like the ability to do what I do currently with Taken, where it's like we we check in occasionally. Um, you know, we are finishing up recording of like a five song EP currently, so it's like it feels manageable, yet it still gets out that sort of creative fire from that perspective, and ultimately. The fact that people still care, like it just it. And when I say care, I don't mean care in like a very large sense of the word. Um, but it's just nice to have people who are it's like, you know, using I'll use a random band as an example, a band like Counterparts, who's, you know, extremely successful from like the sort of melodic hardcore perspective. And, you know, they do well here in the States and abroad and in Canada. And, you know, they continually reference Taken as an influence on them. And I look at it and I love the band and I see the strains of DNA that they've pulled from Taken and incorporated in their music. But then they obviously do it, you know, much more, uh, they do it better, frankly, than, you know, we were doing it at that (laughs) time. Um, And so, and then I also look at the fact, like some of the shows that we've played over the past year and a half, Taken specifically, 
we, uh, you know, we play in front of uh, audiences that have no idea who we are, you know, like we open for a tray you or we open for like Sayusin <laughs> or something like that. And yeah, there's like maybe a small contingent that knows who we are, but, you know, we're playing to a largely new audience and people watch us and then they come up to me, you know, selling the merch afterwards and are like, hey, I never heard of you guys before. Like, you know, what's your story? And I was and it's like, I, you know, I don't even know where to begin because I was like, well, we technically were around probably when you were going to a trade shows in 2003, but you probably just didn't see us at the time or whatever. Um, but to me, that points not at the, the fact that like, oh, where the fuck have you been? Why don't you know what this band is? But more so in the fact that like, hey, we can get up there and play music when we're in our 30s that was created, you know, 10 to 15 years ago. And it still can hold relevance to people who had never heard of us before. So to me, that's like... Uh, to me that scratches that itch of just like wow like that's really cool and you know i don't want to use the word timeless because it makes it sound like we're like bruce springsteen or some shit like that but <laughs> that's definitely not the case it's just the fact that it's like oh we can get up in front of you know younger people and that are you know sometimes 15 years younger than us and we can play and it still means something to them and that's that's really really important to me so that satisfies any sort of weird desire i have to be like oh i gotta be on tour because i don't i don't need that anymore in my life <laughs> I think it's really weird how time like satiates those things like obviously still someone that's really connected to music and I'm the same I'm in a band as well just now and um, it's been it's been an interesting year for that way and I do have there's still this part of me it's like I really want to like go on tour and do that like every night and and kind of do that I've never done it before but there's also another part of me that's kind of like well but I have responsibilities like you know paying rent and you know, and having a, a job I actually quite like, and it's, it's having that sort of cognitive dissonance is is really it can be quite jarring for me sometimes. But if obviously yourself, you don't really look at it like that anymore. So that must be quite refreshing because you can focus on your life now. You, you know? it, to me, it's it's a matter of being present. You know, like you have the ability to be a tra- to be a transient and not focus on anything that is kind of rooted at home. Because those are the years in which you're supposed to, you know, obviously figure out who you are, um, you know, in relation to the rest of the world. And then obviously once you kind of step into the, uh, you know, the world after that, that's when you have the these desires of just like, dude, I love routine. I love the ability to exist in people's lives in ways that I might not have been if I was still touring, you know, because essentially touring is just this weird suspended state of animation where you're not really living a life. You're living this like sort of circus of experiences, which obviously is fun for, you know, for some people longer than others. Um, but for some, it just it, it has to have an expiration date because these things become so routine where you don't like the idea. Um, I always joke around with this because like, you know, both my parents and like my wife and most of my family jokes around with me every time like we go on vacation because they're like, oh, yeah, you've probably already been here. Right. And I'm like, well, yeah, I have. But like, you know, when you're talking about a certain city, it's like, yeah, you've been maybe been to a venue in that city and maybe been around four or five blocks around it and you haven't got to experience the city at all because you know you're just there for a night and then you got to bail the next day so like you're not actually experiencing it so it's like i love it when bands get older and then they're able to like actually go back to a city that they've played like you know 10 plus times and are like oh wow like i've never been to you know the bean in millennium park in chicago and it's like dude you've played chicago like 10 times and like that thing that you just went to is like five minutes away from the venue it's just like oh i've never never done that and so you start to realize that there are (laughs) there's nice things about being an adult and controlling your own destiny as opposed to like all right well i gotta go to rochester tonight cool (laughs) 
I'm, I'm definitely in that space as, as someone that's 30 and actually enjoys being around for like my girlfriend and stuff like that and, and you know just generally being around it's one of those things where I'm like I'm, the, the fire's still there but I kind of need to tame it and kind of go I played a show this month so that's cool that'll, that'll keep me going yeah. until next until next month totally you know? but there's also still that part of me that wants to go that goes but I think the music we've made is really awesome and I want those people to hear it you know so it's like it's hard man it's weird I don't I don't like being old and getting being an adult it, it makes it freaks me out a little bit well I, I to me I think there's a fine line especially to where when I say our generation I mean people because like I'm 36 years old and I'm like you know most people that are under the age of 40 are this generation you know people that have grown grown yeah. up in the music space between you know late 80s early 90s so I think we have the ability to um you know not we, we have the able we have the ability to grow old but not forget all of the fun stuff that we enjoyed because you know essentially we still like you know, my parents look at my job and like what I've made with my life from a, you know, like a professional career perspective. And they're just like, none of it makes any sense to me. Like, I don't know what you're doing. I don't know what it is that you've really accomplished, um, you know, from like the sort of mainstream perspective. You know, it's not like they're, uh, you know, bragging to their friends on like, oh, my son's a lawyer and closed this case. It's like, you know, oh, great. My son put out a stick to your guns record. It's like, well, you know, that has no, like that's not meaningless to everybody. Um, outside of obviously our world, but the notion that you can obviously do these things and live an unconventional life, but still have all of this sort of quote unquote trappings of being a responsible adult. It's just exciting because at the end of the day, you're more confident and your ability to interact with normal people. And when I, I use the word normal, as far as like, you know, just your average person who's never been exposed to a subculture, um, you know, I, I look at it, I always look at it in the context of like my son, where it's like, here's, you know, my son, he's five years old, he's vegetarian. Um, you know, he, his interests are very much, you know, akin to most five-year-olds, but like, you know, he just has a worldview that most other kids don't have, you know? And it's like, you know, like my dad plays in a band, like, you know, not saying that makes him cooler, but that just gives him a different worldview. And then I often feel that way when I'm interacting with like his fellow classmates parents where they're like you know oh tell me about yourself and i'm like all right well i'm like this 36 year old straight edge vegan guy and they're just like what i don't even know what any of those words are it's so, it's it's fun to be able to interact with people because ultimately it just shows them that there there's more than one way to uh you know be an adult and we all don't have to arrive at this very sort of cookie cutter existence so you know while i I encourage the the fear that you may have. I I just think like growing older is rad, especially when you don't um, when you don't hold back on like who you are and you're just able to kind of like grow into it and lean into it more. It's just even more satisfying because you're just like, yo, I'm comfortable in my skin. You know, of course, if you're not comfortable in your skin, totally get it. And that's like a very it's a very terrifying thing because obviously as each year passes, you're just like, I don't know who the fuck I am. But <laughs> the more and more you can, I guess, lean into your experiences. And then ultimately that makes you, you know, who you are, uh, the older you get, the better you'll be. You know, what's interesting doing this podcast has actually made me much, like much, much, much more comfortable with being that kind of person. Cause I'm interacting with people who have experienced it and got on to do other things, you know, and I now I spend so much time with all my friends that are also all, involved in the same music scene I don't have any friends that are not involved in music in some way at this particular point in my life you know the ones that I used to have are now kind of away doing their own thing and that's cool um, but I think 
what you're right, you're totally right in what you're saying, and it's really cool to be able to kind of grow up and be passionate about something you've always liked, and that's okay because you can still fucking make money and <laughs> and live a life and take care of people, and and it's not like it's not the end of the world, you know? Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. You can, yeah, as long as long as you're not like looking back on your experiences and like wincing and being like, oh my god, I can't believe I I am still caring about all this stuff that I cared about. Because then ultimately, that's not who you truly are. You know, you're still on this journey. And I'm not saying like, like my own personal experience, like I, you know, I, I made a right decision when I was, you know, 15 years old and I've stuck with it ever since. Like, I mean, I fortunately have with a couple of decisions, but the the notion that as you get older, you should really just kind of refine um, those things that, you know, are still meaningful to you, you know? And it's like, ultimately, if, you know, going to shows and like, being the sort of version of yourself isn't who you really are then shed that you know like we have that's we have the ability as the hum, as humans to do that but don't don't shed it if it's out of the pressure of like what you know you should be at this point you know like that that's just dumb that's just you know society weighing down on you or whatever you know cliched punk lyric you want to put in there um but i think that that notion of you being just a more you know developed and evolved person as you get older and still holding on to all those those principles that you learned when you were you know 14 15 16 years old to me that's the person that you should strive to be as opposed to like this ever changing chameleon of like all right i'm gonna you know i'm not gonna be this person anymore i'm gonna be this person and then you completely pivot and like you look back at those three years before and you're just like can't fucking believe i did that it's just like <laughs> like i, I don't I, I i don't get those people obviously i'm sure you have known people like that but it just doesn't it doesn't make any sense to me you know um i have a whole bunch more questions but that's such a positive thing you've just said i kind of want to leave it on that that's no problem whatsoever <laughs> um but before we finally wrap up and put a big pin in it and nail it to the wall or whatever um is there anything else you want to say or anything you want to ask me before we finish um no i don't think so i mean i appreciate your your time and obviously wanting to engage with people who are uh, obviously creatives and obviously showcasing uh different people's experiences in creating stuff because i think that's an important um that's an important vision to share um because i know each person has their own uh metrics of not only success but then uh metrics of what makes them up as an individual so yeah i just appreciate your interest in your time well thank you for taking the time to talk to me ray it's been an absolute pleasure well thank you well thanks very much and i'll hopefully see you again hopefully speak to you soon yeah no problem man and our view was almost lost forever there were some technical issues but we got through them and I'm so happy that the interview is now out there when I started podcasting Ray's podcast 100 words or less was one of the first podcasts I came across when I started doing research into sort of punk and sort of alternative music interview podcasts it was a real honour to talk to him the guy's been doing it for a long long time now over six years and his podcast is ace He's a true testament to what can happen if you just stick at something and keep going. He's interviewed pretty much everybody that I would like to interview and and we've interviewed a lot of the same people as well. But as mentioned in the interview, can't really be enough of this kind of podcast. There's always space for more because when it comes to sort of punk and hardcore and alternative music, there aren't that many out there, particularly ones that focus on 
some lesser known bands. But yes, thank you very much for listening. I hope you enjoyed that. If you take a wee second to check us out on Twitter, that would be amazing. You can get me at the Curator Pod. And come say hi. Come say hello. I like hellos. And if you could share this podcast around, that would be superb. Until next time, bye-bye. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.